Good morning. My name is Kathy Rochester, and today's scripture text is Genesis 18, 1 through 15, and Genesis 21, 1 through 7. This starts on page 12 and also page 15 in the Black Pew Bible, if you'd like to follow along. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one with you. Please stand as you're able for the reading of God's word. Again, that's Genesis 18, 1 through 15, and Genesis 21, 1 through 7. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour kneaded and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of, Ab of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. And about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet... I have borne him a son in his old age. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. The gospel has been growing and bearing fruit here at Chatham and in North County, and we're just really thankful to be a part of that. Grateful that God would use people like us in a church like us to affect others with this great news of His grace. We've been reflecting on this theme of God's grace breaking in. As we look at the story of Abraham, 
and Sarah. Now, primarily, we focused on Abraham. Most of the story is about him and the changes that God did in his heart. But today, as John mentioned, we focus on Sarah. These passages are really about her. So the Genesis 18 passage, the first one that Kathy read, has this conversation that happens between the Lord and Abraham. And the Lord reiterates this promise of a son. And yet we know that the conversation really isn't for Abraham's sake. It's for Sarah's sake. It's for her benefit. She is eavesdropping. She's listening from outside the tent as Abraham is talking to this mysterious stranger about God's promise. And so God is really speaking through Abraham to Sarah. And so Sarah responds in this... uh, maybe quite a natural way, just laughing at the promise of her and Abraham having a child. She's 90, he's almost 100. It just does sound ridiculous, let's admit it. And so she laughs. And there's this, this bitterness and disbelief and hopelessness in her laughter. Of course, God hears her laugh and confronts her with that fact, right? God doesn't want to leave her be with her bitterness and hopelessness. He wants to press her on that and confront her, have her face, the state of her heart. And so God says, why did you laugh? You know, and she's caught in the act, right? She's, God heard her laughing. And yet she panics and she denies it. She says, I didn't laugh. And then this very humorous passage comes when God and Sarah, like, like two kids, just go back and forth, and God says, you did laugh, and she says, no, I didn't. Yes, you did, and she says, no, I didn't. She says, you, you did too. She says, I, I did not. And they just go back, it just makes me laugh every time I read this. She's talking to God, and she says, she's not going to admit that she was laughing in disbelief. Now, fast forward a year or so, to chapter 21 of Genesis, which we also read that passage. And she is holding this newborn baby, Isaac, whose very name means laughter. She's holding this baby in her arms, and she laughs. And she knows other people are laughing at her. And she is completely at peace with the fulfillment of God's promise. This is quite a different laughter that happens here. It's a, it's a laughter that's full of hope. It's a laughter that's full of joy. There's no bitterness or insecurity or hopelessness anymore. So what happened in a year? What happened to this woman that laughed out of bitterness and despair to now that she's holding this baby and, and laughing at herself in many ways, laughing joyfully? What happened? Well, God's grace broke in. Something happened through that child, through Isaac. God did something in her heart, in Sarah's heart. God isn't just concerned with Abraham. He's also concerned with Sarah. And God did something in her heart that changed the way she laughs now. There's a difference in her laughter now that that exposes a deeper change in her heart. So that's what we're talking about today. We're going to look at how grace can change our laughter. I have two major points to the sermon. Number one, how God's gift of Isaac changed Sarah's laughter. And number two, how God's gift of Jesus can change our laughter. So let's look at Sarah's laughter first and then our laughter second. As I mentioned, everything changes because 
of God's gracious gift of Isaac, whose very name means laughter. Three things result from this gracious gift. This gift conceives a sense of wonder. It creates, causes a feeling of gratitude, and then it creates a state of humility. So let's work through these. Wonder, gratitude, and humility. Look with me, please, at verse 12 of chapter 18. Genesis 18:12. This is how Sarah initially responds to this promise. She laughs to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? It's a laugh of a weary, jaded, cynical, and a bitter person. She says, I'm old. I'm old. How can I have a baby? My husband is old. She says, when Abraham takes me out on a date, we make a reservation for 430. Because we want to get the senior discount. She's saying, we don't have babies. That's, that's not how it works. T.S. Eliot wrote these lines, probably thinking about somebody like Sarah. I grow old, I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. Now she's not talking just about her physical age. That's, of course, that's a big obstacle as it is. But she feels worn out. See, she feels old. Now some of you who are biologically advanced in years, you don't feel old, you don't act old. She does. There's that sense of being used up and worn out. and There's a sense of resignation in her laughter. She is profoundly disillusioned with life. There's deep bitterness in her heart. When she says, shall I have pleasure? She's talking about her intimate relationship with her husband. She's saying, we don't, we don't do that anymore. Even the normal joys of marital life seem out of reach, out of reach for her. It's, it's not available to her anymore. She, does, she doesn't think that normal, joyful, happy things happen to her anymore. And God says, I will have a baby. Wonderful things like that just don't happen to people like us. That's why she's laughing in a bitter kind of way. What's really absent from Sarah's life is wonder. She can't even imagine something great, something incredible, something amazing happening to her. It just doesn't seem feasible that a miracle would happen in her life. There's no space for a miracle in her worldview. And maybe that describes you. Maybe you laugh like Sarah did as well. Maybe you feel disillusioned and weary and worn out and bitter and hopeless. And so maybe when you laugh, the rare times that you do laugh, your laugh betrays that. Is there wonder in your life? Do you believe and expect something amazing 
happening to you today? Do you have a mindset that allows you to imagine that a miracle may occur in your life? Now we live in a culture and in a time that could be very well could be characterized by the loss of wonder. I don't know if you've seen this video. You can easily find it online. Comedian Louis C.K. had a, had a bit on the, some late night show about maybe seven, eight years ago. He captures this wonderlessness well, in my opinion. This bit is called, Everything is Amazing and Nobody's Happy. Everything is amazing, but nobody is happy. He talks about our generation being the generation that has experienced the most amazing advances in technology. Even in my lifetime, things have happened that I could not have imagined 10, 15 years ago would happen. And yet, Louis C.K. says that, that it's wasted on a generation that takes it for granted and is, is ungrateful, <laughs> that is constantly frustrated with the things that we couldn't even imagine would exist. And so he uses these this funny examples of you know, somebody getting out their, their phone and being frustrated with the speed of the connection, right? It's just not coming up fast enough. You've all done that, I know. And so, so you look at that phone and you say, man, I can't believe how slow it is. And Louis C.K. says, give it a minute. The signal is going into space. It has to come back. And then he talks about this experience he had on, on an airplane where where this was the first time that Wi-Fi was available on an airplane. I think by now most of us are used to it, so in a matter of several years. But at that time, it just became available. The first time he's on an airplane with somebody uh, who's using Wi-Fi, and it's now readily available, and they announce that it's a big deal, and, and the guy connects to Wi-Fi and is watching a video, and then it goes out. Pilot apologizes. They're still trying to work, in, work out the kinks of that. And, and the guy that was just using that for a minute, for the first time in his life, in the air, is utterly crushed. And saying, this is ridiculous, that this doesn't work. And Louis C.K. says, but, but you didn't have that a minute ago. How could you be so frustrated that something doesn't work, that you didn't know even existed a minute ago? And yet we are so easily disappointed, right, with these amazing things. You know, air travel, those, those kind of things. I mean, it's, it's amazing that things like that happen, and yet none of us think it's amazing. We complain about these things, right? We complain that Wi-Fi at our house is not fast enough or doesn't reach in every closet of, of the house. Right? I mean, what is it about us that we, we are just immune to wonder? These things are really incredible. And yet we don't see them that way. We've become more cynical and more bitter with time, it seems, the more amazing things we have around ourselves. Now when Isaac is born, so chapter 21, Sarah's sense of wonder is restored. Now it's important to recognize that this amazing change, this transformation happens to a very old person. Why am I bringing up her age all the time? 
Well, because during the course of life, we lose, we gradually lose wonder. It doesn't happen overnight. If you have small children in your house, you know just how surprised they can be with something that is just so normal to us, right? My Polly, if I tell her, tonight we're going to have pizza for dinner. I don't usually make an announcement of that, but I tell her that. And she says, really? That's her response every time. She says, wow, I love cheese pizza. That's how she responds to normal stuff. She's excited about everything in life. Like bonfires, driving in the van, choosing one van over the other is a surprise to her. Mornings, big deal. She just wakes up and it's great. It's daylight, it's great. I mean, things like that. And, but with time, and we all started there, all of us were excited about those things. But with time, you lose that. As you get disappointed in life, as your dreams don't come true, as you realize that some things, they're just going to keep happening again and again and again, and you can easily take it for granted. We become jaded and cynical. We lose that, that childlike excitement and this expectation of the miraculous. You lose it over time just by living. And so when Isaac is born, Sarah's childlike wonder is restored. It's like she travels in time and she starts acting like Isaac. She experiences life in just a different way now. This is verse 7 of chapter 21. She says, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children. There's an amazement in her voice. Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Something incredible happened. And she is in wonder, in awe of what happened to her. This is really amazing. Life is wonderful to her at 90. Because the process of the loss of wonder has been reversed. And I think for the rest of her life, she will discover more and more wonderful things because grace has broken into her existence. That's the first thing that happens. Wonder is restored. Second thing that happens because of this gift of Isaac, there's a feeling of gratitude that seeps into Sarah's heart. In verse 6 of 21, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. God has made laughter for me. This restored sense of wonder produces a feeling of profound gratitude. This is not just, you know, thank you for a child you really shouldn't have. I mean, this is, this is not the kind of response. This is a, a deep, you know, jubilant kind of gratitude that Sarah now has. It's a deeply felt emotion. This is the kind of gratitude that has now filled the emptiness that she had in chapter 18. Now her heart is full. It's overflowing with gratitude for what God has done in her life. You see, wonder is 
just believing that miracles happen, that life is wonderful. But gratitude is realizing that it happened to you, that something amazing happened to you and you are thankful. It's really rooted in this idea of grace, one of the fundamental ideas that we keep talking about every week. Something was given to you that you didn't deserve. Something was granted to you. You were blessed with something that really doesn't belong to you. You really couldn't expect it, and yet you have it. Who would have thought that Sarah would nurse children, and yet Sarah says, here I am, nursing a child. Sarah was not supposed to have a baby, but she did. Because God blessed her, undeservedly, unexpectedly, God blessed her, and that's grace, and she is profoundly grateful for it. She's not looking at the world with cynical eyes anymore. Now, when something amazing happens to you, you have a baby, for example. You know, I think of a father who meets his daughter for the first time in the hospital, and then you go home, and as you drive, as you walk, everything just seems different, right? Fathers, you remember those times when a woman gets engaged. Everything just seems different. The colors pop, right? It's just birds sing louder. You start noticing things. Food tastes better. Because something happened to you and you are so grateful for it that it opens up your eyes to see the reality of the rest of your life as a gift as well. And so you look and you say, oh, this food is a gift and it's so wonderful and these colors are a gift and they're so bright. You just start thinking about your life in, in very different ways because of something that happened to you. All sorts of little things that you used to take for granted, now you feel grateful for. So the question to us is, do we live gratefully? Do we realize that Everything we have has been given to us. Nothing really belongs to us. We don't really deserve anything we possess. Now you might say, some of you, the self-made people that some of you are, may say, well, wait a minute. Not everything. I worked pretty hard for where I am right now. I went to school. Then I went to school again. And then I went to school again to get where I am. And then I worked, and I put in long hours. And it was a lot of effort that I had to, had to put into this job to get a promotion to be where I am right now, to enjoy the blessings that I have. I'm not denying at all that you worked hard and that you put a lot of effort into those things. But don't you think that you were born at a certain time to a certain family and a certain culture that allowed you to do that? All those opportunities that are given to you but not to others? What if you were born in Sudan during civil war? Where would you get? You could work just as hard. You could be just as smart and have nothing. It's a gift. It's a gift. Everything you have is a gift. Everything I have is a gift. So the question is, am I realizing that? Am I understanding that it's a gift? And am I responding to every gift in gratitude? This morning, we all got an extra hour of sleep. 
Praise God. I mean, that's an amazing gift. Especially to someone like me that thought last night that we were losing an hour. Every year I get confused about it. And this morning, look at that, an extra hour. It's a gift. And yet, how many of us have complained this morning, right? I have to change all the clocks. And... It's a gift. Thirdly, this birth of Isaac creates a state of humility. It creates a state of humility. In verse 6 of 21, Sarah says, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. This newly found sense of wonder that has filled Sarah's heart with gratitude now ushers a different state of being. Sarah now has a much different look of herself. She can laugh at herself now. And she can do it in a joyful, kind of a self-forgetful way. She knows she looks ridiculous. She knows that. Holding a newborn baby, a 90-year-old woman nursing an infant. She knows it looks ridiculous. She's not trying to pretend it's normal. She's not taking credit for it. She says, who, who would have thought that I would nurse babies? And look at me. I'm nursing babies. It's amazing. She says, everyone who looks at me, they must be laughing at me. And it's okay. Let them laugh over me. Let them acknowledge that it is ridiculous, that God did something completely amazing in my life. I'm laughing at myself too. I know what it looks like. Now what I find fascinating here, that that humility, she's not you know, putting herself up and saying, look what I've done. I could make a baby at 90. She's not doing that. She's saying, this is ridiculous, but I have a baby. But what's interesting is that there is a hopefulness to her humility. There's an expectation of, what else is God going to do now? He could do that. What else is he thinking of? Remember, at first, that first laughter that, that we read about in chapter 18, Sarah sees herself as useless, worn out, old. And now she seems to have this openness to anything else God might do in her life, to use her in a totally different way. She feels a lot of potential in herself now. Her life isn't over. She just had a baby. She's got to raise the baby. And who knows what else God is going to do. There's no telling what else he can do if he did that. Now we think about humility and often we present humility as, as this absence of ambition and absence of activity. You know, we, we equate it with this, this passive acceptance of things as they are. And yet, I don't believe that that's what biblical humility really is. Humility, at its essence, is simply just an accurate view of yourself. To be humble is just to see you for who you are. Of course, in relation to God, as totally dependent on God. That's humility. 
It's not putting yourself down. It's not, it's not thinking of yourself less than you really are. It's just thinking of yourself as totally dependent on God, which is exactly what we are. It's accurate. It's right. It's correct to think of yourself as completely dependent on God. That is humility. And we know what people that are people who are totally dependent on God, what they can do, what they're capable of, don't we? We hear so many stories of people doing amazing things that think nothing of themselves and everything of God. They built cathedrals, those people, those humble Christians. They discover lands. They create art. No other religion has produced so much art as Christianity. They start national movements. They adopt children. They change cities. That's the product of humility. It's people who have an accurate view of themselves as completely dependent on God are now being used by God. By God who has no limits and could use us any way He wants if we are available to Him. G.K. Chesterton said that angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. Angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. That's humility. They're flying. They're not staying on the ground. Please notice that. But the reason they can fly is because they have an accurate view of who they are. And so should we. Now let's shift gears a little bit. We'll revisit some of these themes, but I want to make it practical to us. I want to root it in the gospel, which is our experience. We're going to look at another gift that can transform our laughter. Hundreds of years later, God makes another promise to another woman. She wasn't old, nor did she have an old husband. She had no husband. She was a virgin. And the angel told her that she will bear a son. Mary says, how can it be? I don't do that kind of stuff. I know how babies are made. That's not what's happening. How can I have a baby? And the angel says very much like what the angel says in Genesis 18, nothing is impossible with God. Sense of wonder is returning. This baby, the son, would not just save Mary from hopelessness and emptiness like he did with Sarah. He would save all his people from their sins. As Ambrose put it, this child is the joy of all who check the dread of fearsome death. He took away its terror and became for all people the forgiveness of their sins. Mary's child is a gift to all of us. And friends, if Sarah's laughter was so dramatically transformed by God's gift of Isaac, how much more should our laughter be transformed by God's gift of Jesus? Do you see how much greater this gift is comparatively to Isaac? And yet we saw a dramatic transformation in Sarah. Imagine what God can do with us who've been given Jesus. So let's walk through these wonder and great gratitude and humility as we did with Sarah. Gift of Jesus conceives a sense of 
wonder in our lives. Remember, Jesus said several times that we must become like little children to enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he talking about? Well, a couple of different things, but certainly one of them is this childlike faith, the childlike wonder. Remember, children start out that way and then something happens. So talking to adults, Jesus says, you must recover the sense of wonder that children have. You must have the same experience of life and me as children do, in simplicity, in this expectation of the miraculous happening in your life. So let me ask you, like, like John Newton, the great hymn writer, are you amazed at God's grace? Or like Charles Wesley, can you sing along with him, standing in awe of what God has done for him and what he's done for us? And can it be that I should gain? I mean, notice how he's phrasing it. Can it really be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? There's a lot of awe and wonder in this hymn. Died he for me who caused his pain. I caused his pain and yet he died for me. For me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be? Listen to the emotion of the hymn writer. Wesley saying, how can it be? that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Wonder returns to us, those that have been given the gift of Jesus. So my question is, does the gospel of Christ's birth, of His sinless life, of His substitutionary death, of His victorious resurrection, of His royal ascension, and the promise of His glorious return, does it restore a sense of wonder into your life? Listen to Ravi Zacharias. He says, We forget the immensity of the truth that God loves us just as we are in the frailty and the struggle with which we live. Understanding this must more than inform the mind. It must stir the heart with emotion. That is the understanding that feeds wonder. When the truth remains abstract, the soul does not live off the treasure. When the truth remains abstract, the soul does not live off the treasure. Does your soul live off the treasure? of the gospel do you see the gospel as wonderful we trivialize that word everything is wonderful no does the gospel fill you with wonder so you can say the gospel is wonderful do you believe in the possibility of miracles in your life in fact expecting exciting things to happen to you. Like a little kid expects every day something amazing is going to happen. Is that what God's gift of Jesus do to your heart? 
I'm afraid that for many Christians, the story of the gospel seems dull and boring. Listen to Dorothy Sayers, a friend of C.S. Lewis's and Tolkien and others. She writes, Somehow or other, and with the best intentions, we have shown the world the typical Christian in the likeness of a crashing and rather ill-tempered bore. And this is the name in the name of one who assuredly never bored a soul in those 33 years during which he passed through the world like a flame. She's saying we're talking about the least boring person in the most boring way. She's saying we've presented this image of a Christian as an ill-tempered bore. Are you presenting the gospel to yourself, experiencing it, but also to others, to the world around you, as boring and dull, some dry dogma, some collection of facts, some scheme of salvation you have to walk through step by step? Have you forgotten the drama of the gospel? God coming to earth. Please, just stop and think about that. God coming into our lives. It is incredible that it happened. God coming to us to help us, to rescue us. God becoming human. Not just showing up and telling us what to do, but becoming like us, changing humanity from within. How can anybody say it's boring? God living in human cities, cities we have built, and going to weddings and funerals and Halloween parties and healing people, returning dead babies to mothers. That's not boring. God who was accused of blasphemy and treason. That's drama. If you're writing a book and you're putting the different pieces together and you're trying to create a cool plot, this is a cool plot. God showing up and ironically, God himself is accused of blasphemy against God. Of being a traitor. I mean, it's amazing. God who was mocked and whipped. That's drama. That's a story. God crucified for the sins of the world. Jesus on the cross bearing the weight of our iniquity. God dying. Oh, come on, that's exciting. I mean, it boggles our mind. Yes, God coming to us as a human being, that's amazing. But then God dying, the immortal, embracing death, being buried in a grave. And then God raised on the third day. Exactly as the prophecies have declared. Then God ascending into heaven again, but never giving up His humanity. God returning to restore peace and justice to the world. 
God ruling His creation again. That's not boring. How can we make it boring? Man, it, it takes some effort to make this story dull. Let's stop doing that. Stop making the gospel boring. Don't you dare make the gospel boring. It's the most exciting thing in the world. All the stories that we read and, and watch and listen to, all of them, all the good stories have their roots in this story. There's no drama without the gospel. There's no comedy without the gospel. That's why we resonate with good stories so much, because we have this story. Now think about the implications of this for our witnessing, for our apologetics. If we proclaimed and modeled the gospel's power to restore wonder in our world, what if we did that? What if we laughed in such a way as to restore wonder to this world? C.S. Lewis, you're familiar with the Screwtape Letters. It's, it's a book about a senior devil teaching a, a junior associate how to tempt people and, and lead them away from Christ. And there's a chapter on laughter. And this senior devil is very concerned that one of the people that's being tempted is laughing. And he's hanging out with people who are laughing. And he says there's a certain kind of laughter that's very harmful. It is, we need to avoid that. He says this, he says, Laughter of this kind does us no good and should always be discouraged. Besides, the phenomenon is of itself disgusting and a direct insult to the realism, dignity, and austerity of hell. Devil speak. <laughs> there, there, he's, say, he's saying this, this kind of laughter goes against what hell is about. Hell is austere. Hell is dignified. But the gospel brings laughter. It restores wonder. So what if we encouraged and practiced this kind of hell-defined, God-exalting laughter in our churches, in our homes? What if we laughed like Sarah laughs as she holds Isaac in her arms? This kind of irrepressible, uproarious, contagious laughter might just become the best apologetic for the Christian faith in our culture today. So, as Van Morrison said, let your laughter fill the room. Don't suppress those gospel giggles that you have coming on. Don't suppress them, express them. Be okay with the cackles of the converted and the Christian chuckles. Let it go. Be a joyful, laughing, hell-defined, but gospel-affirming Christian. Number two, the gift of Jesus causes a feeling of gratitude. It restores that sense of wonder. But then it makes us grateful that something happened to us, a miracle happened to us, and so our emptiness 
too could be filled with God's gift to us in Jesus. We can live a life in profound gratitude. Who would have thought that we would be here today worshiping God? Are you surprised in any way? If you are not surprised, you have to do some work in understanding what it means. God has gathered us in this place so we could worship Him. Us. He's gathered us the way we are. So He could listen to us saying to Him. So He could try to decipher our prayers. So He could see us deal with our children and our spouses and our friends. Every time we come to church, we should come in utter amazement that we are welcome here. We're sinners. And God is drawing us in. Remember grace. Remember that's, that's where it's based in. That somehow grace came into my life. This amazing grace came into my life. And so now I am here worshiping God in full acceptance through Christ and in power of the Holy Spirit, me, I am here worshiping God. That is surprising. I am grateful. Are you grateful that you are at church today, that God saved you? There should be this just (laughs) ceaseless laughter in our lives and we just stop and consider who we are and what God has done for us. You know, everybody should be grateful, of course, because everybody has gifts from God. But especially Christians, especially those that that have realized who gives those gifts. We know Him. We know the Giver. And so as we think about it, we say, He's not just given us gifts. He's given us Himself, and He's now in a relationship with me. And out of the wealth of that relationship, I should not be able to stop laughing. I remember when Jillian and I were first married and we were in Chicago for I think probably a couple of years before we were able to go home and, and see my family and so, so I didn't see them for probably a couple of years. And I remember that first couple of days when my, I have a brother who's five years younger than me and I remember those couple of days when we would just hang out and we were trying to just catch up. I remember one particular time I just could not stop laughing. I mean, it was quite embarrassing. Jillian still probably remembers that. I just, I couldn't control myself. Why was I, why? And it's me, right? So you know me. You can't probably imagine me doing that. Why couldn't I stop laughing when I was hanging out with my brother? I was catching up on the joy of the relationship. I didn't have it for a couple of years. And now that I had it, I needed time and there was a lot of emotion that had had to catch up with where I was. Now imagine the relationship with God. Imagine the wealth and the depth of it. And God says, you are completely welcome in my presence. You are you're absolutely accepted through Christ because Christ died and rose for you. That should fill our hearts with laughter, shouldn't it? If we get it, if we experience it, shouldn't our response be like Sarah? Who would have thought that I would be in the presence of God? And yet I am. And I'm grateful for that. And then finally, the gift of Jesus creates a state of humility. It makes us humble. Like Sarah, we can now laugh at ourselves. There has to be a lightness 
to our view of ourselves if we are truly humble. There must always be an element of surprise when we think about ourselves just saved by God's grace. Look at me, a Christian. Who would have thought that God would save me? Incredible. Is that how you feel? Do you feel like you know who you are in relation to God? You have an accurate view of yourself. You don't deserve His love, and yet you have it. Yes, you're grateful for that, but it also changes how you are, how you live. That sort of humility must permeate all areas of our lives. We should be constantly surprised that good things are happening to us. Everything is a gift. Everything is humbling and surprising. Every once in a while, when a visitor comes to church, and I introduce myself to them, and I say, Hi, I'm Sergey. I'm the pastor here. And they say, You're the pastor? It happens more than you think. And my usual response to that is, I know. I am just as surprised as you are. That me, that God would choose me to preach the gospel to his people. It shouldn't be. And yet, here I am. See, when you experience things like that and when you process them through the gospel, it changes you. It must change you. It must permeate your whole life where you are just constantly surprised that God has given you all these wonderful gifts. And so we live then differently in light of that. Remember, humility isn't about passivity. It's not about just accepting your old wretchedness. That's part of it, but... There's more to it. It drives you to live differently. Now that you are dependent on God, you've realized that you are who you are, accurately assessed yourself, and you say, I cannot live unless I am utterly dependent on God. And everything I have is a gift from Him. If that's true, that forces you to live differently. Now you live courageously and audaciously, taking on every challenge for God's sake. Not for your own sake. I can't, I can't do it. I can't overcome any of my challenges. But because I'm dependent on God who can, now I can live a different kind of life. Now let me close with this. I'm going to give you another quote by G.K. Chesterton that writes about this sense of wonder and, and the feeling of gratitude resulting in a different kind of life. He says, Oscar Wilde, said that sunsets were not valued because we could not pay for sunsets. Sunsets were not valued because we could not pay for them. But, Chesterton says, Oscar Wilde was wrong. We can pay for sunsets. We can pay for them by not being Oscar Wilde. It's a gift, but you respond to that gift by a changed life, by a different kind of life. You're not free to do whatever you want anymore, but you're free to live courageously, confidently, missionally, differently because God's grace broken into your life and it's restored the sense of wonder. It's given you a feeling of gratitude and it's, it's assessed, you, assessed you accurately. Now you know who you are and now you can laugh as Sarah did holding a baby in her arms. We're going to come to the table. And when we come to the table, this is every week, you get an opportunity to examine again what God has done for you.
for that sense of wonder to be restored and fueled again by the gospel. For you to feel grateful because you hold the bread and you hold the cup and you're saying, God has done this to me. It's coming into my body now. This is for me. This amazing thing in this wonderful world, God has chosen me to bless me. And so you come to the table gratefully. You come to the table excited. You come to the table chuckling to yourself. Look at me. Me, a sinner, coming to the table of the Lord. If that's where you are, a Christian, saved by God's grace, when grace broke into your life, I welcome you at this table. We're going to come together. We're going to sing a song and everybody's going to come to the table And as you come, you are welcome to take the bread and the cup right here and and leave the cup here. Or you can take it back with you. If you feel like you need more time to reflect, you can pray. The song is going to be longer, so you have time to reflect and, and think about your life. Am I grateful? Am I in awe of Christ today? And then take it on your own time before the song is over. But if you're not a believer, if what I've said, it doesn't mean much to you, maybe you're wrestling with it, but you, you haven't made that transition, you haven't embraced grace of God, I encourage you not to come to the table, but come to Jesus. See Him for what He is. And embrace Him as your Savior, the gift of God that can change your laughter too. Let's pray as the musicians come up and then we will take communion together. Father, we praise you that you are a God of wonders, that you are a God of miracles. That's just who you are. You're not limited by nature of this world. You do amazing things in the world and in our lives and I pray that you would restore that sense of wonder in our hearts, especially for some of us that may have come to church particularly burdened by something and feeling used up and worn out and too old for anything good to happen to us. Lord, would you reverse that progressive loss of wonder and would you fill our hearts again with the possibility of the miraculous, of grace changing us? Would you make us grateful as we think about Jesus and what he did His birth, His life, His suffering, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, the promise of His return, it's amazing. Don't let us make it boring or just go through the motions right now. But let us be grateful for what You've done for us. May Your Holy Spirit change us. For some of us it means for the first time coming to Christ. For others it means a renewal of faith. For others, it just means extra encouragement and another experience of our connection with you by faith. Lord, I pray that you would do that work in your goodness, in your mercy to us. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.